Welcome to another episode of Hunters and Unicorns, the Sales Leaders Playbook. Today we welcome SaaS legend, Adam Ahrens. Adam has taken leadership positions at companies such as Classy.org, BladeLogic, BMC, and more significantly, Opta, where he rang the bell as CRO, having built the sales function from the ground up. Adam has a legendary status for his ability to drive and build high-performing teams and making things simple. This is an episode not to be missed. This is his playbook. CXOs, we investigate one of the greatest success stories in the history of software sales. 33 CXOs learnt the playbook from one man, John McMahon, a legacy which stretches back to the late 90s at a company called PTC. They were later reunited at BladeLogic, which was acquired by BMC. What happened next was truly remarkable. These CXOs went on to become the most prolific sales leaders in the software industry. They've raised over 22 billion in VC funding. They contribute to 4% of software turnover globally, 26 unicorns, eight decacorns, and the companies they drive have a combined valuation of 230 billion. At Hunters and Unicorn, we're revealing their playbook. Welcome to another episode of Hunters and Unicorns. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Good afternoon, everyone. And it's an absolute honour and privilege to be joined by a true Blade Logic legend, Adam Ahrens. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. It's great to be on here. I appreciate it. Simon Ali, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Brilliant. <laughs> Lovely to have you on the show, Adam. Thanks. So um, in the way of an introduction, Adam, you're, you are currently a board level advisor to a number of organizations. Formerly, you were president and CRO at Classy, and obviously you were uh, CRO at Okta. Um, and we are going to talk a lot about what you have been doing kind of in, in the more recent years. But really want to start right from the beginning because you've got quite an incredible story <laughs> of how it all began for you um, selling knives. So just take us right to the beginning. That's a great place to start. Um, so I started my career in sales in, uh, in cutlery, uh, Cutco Cutlery to be exact. I was in college and I was actually a janitor at nights because it paid really well. Um, and I needed to make enough money that I could go back to school every year. My dad and I had an agreement that I had to have $2,000 at the time in my bank account to go back to school with. And I saw this ad where you could make like $20 doing these presentations. And I was good at doing presentations and things like that. So I applied for it. I went in and it was sort of like a cattle um, call. They brought in like 40 people and they tell you about the sales process that they had. You'd go around and you'd start with your friends and family and then you'd work out through your network and you'd sell them these knives. And the knives are guaranteed forever, not just for your forever, but if you found knives from Cutco that were 30 years old, you could send them in and they'll give you brand new ones. Like their forever guarantee is outstanding. It's a really good stand-up company. Um, so I did it. I did it for a summer 
um, in parallel to my janitor's job as a sales rep. And I did really, really well. I was the number one rep in my office. I was like number 25 in the country, something like that. I sold like 20 something thousand dollars worth of knives in, in three months. And in my travels of doing that, um, I ran across John McMahon. Um, I was, uh, he was a friend of a neighbor of mine and I was in his house trying to pitch his wife on knives. She's, um, she's Dutch. And so we were sitting down, I couldn't get her to make a decision. And the interesting thing about Cutco sales is they're very sales process driven. So they figured out how to build out a process for the average human being that can succeed with it. They have a full objection handling process that they teach you. And if you follow it, it was very effective. And that's kind of where I was. I was a student of the game and I sat down with her. I couldn't get her to make a decision. And I said, well, when does your husband get back? And she said, he's out on a run. He should be back in the next 15 or 20 minutes. John's an avid workout guy. And I said, okay, can I wait for him? And she said, sure. And she said, do you want a beer? And I said, sure. And so I'm sitting at the kitchen table having a beer and John comes walking in sweating, looks at me and then looks at his wife and says, who's this guy? And she says, oh, he's a, he's a uh, sales guy. He wants to talk to you about cutlery. And he looks at me and goes, get him another beer. I'm going to go take a shower and I'll be right back. And then uh, he proceeded to grill me for about an hour. Um, and at the end of it, he goes, you know, you're really good at this. Uh, and I hire, you know, young, talented sales guys all the time. Um, you should quit the knife thing and come work for me. I said, well, I appreciate that. But I'm a sophomore in college. So I've got a couple of years left and this is sort of my side job, but I'd love to keep in touch because when I graduate, you know, I think I'm, this is what I'm going to go do. I, my role, uh, my father was a, a director of sales, so I've always had sort of that path in mind that I was going to go into sales. My dad was on the medical side, on the pharmaceutical side, um, but I always knew that sales was something that, that I wanted to do at an early age. So I kept in touch with John. And I actually ended up going further with Cutco. I opened up my own office and we were um, super successful. We sold like $130,000 worth of knives. And in a summer, um, I had somehow ended up losing money at the end of that summer, but it was a really good learning experience for me. Uh, we sold a bunch, but I spent a bunch. So you talk about T&E and how you manage that it was a really good learning experience for me. Um, but we were super successful. And then I kept in touch with John. And when I graduated, um, I went to the neighbor that introduced me to him the first time because he was living in, in uh, Holland at the time. And I sent him a letter through snail mail. Um, and I got a call because I put my number at the bottom. Uh, they sent it to him in Holland for me, he called me from an airport in Germany and just said, hey, are you ready to get, you ready to get selling? And I said, yeah. Um, and in the time from when I sold him the knives to when he hired me, I kept in touch with John when I'd come home on Christmas break. He actually taught me um, how to read stock market symbols and you know, taught me about PTC and what they were doing. And so he was creating an SDR organization. We were the first SDR organization ever at PTC. And I think I was the youngest salesperson at the time ever to be hired into the program uh, any, in, in any sales capacity. Um, and so I started there at PTC, sort of at the bottom in Boston, um, which is where I'd gone to school and where I'd met John. And then uh, proceeded after about six, nine months after I joined, John quit. He left PTC. Um, I stayed for about three and a half years. They moved me out to San Francisco as a sales rep. Uh, I was very successful as a inside sales rep, SDR. I ended up managing the team for a while because I was the youngest guy and they were afraid to move me out too fast. Um, and then they moved me to San Jose. They were rebuilding the team out in the West. Guys like Carlos um, <laughs> and some other folks that you've had on had churned and gone on to other areas and the West was just sort of a mess. Um, so we came in with a new manager, um, new management, and we, we were there to turn the thing around. Um, so that was sort of my, my process from SDR into sales. And when I got to 
uh, the San Jose office, they gave me Milpitas and Fremont was my territory, which if you know the Bay Area, it's like the absolute worst territory you can possibly get. Um, and I started from there and just started working my way uh, into to being as persistent and, and good at the process as I could. I wanted to be excellent at what I saw people that made tons of money were doing. And for me, it was just that I was like, hey, why not me? This looks like something that I can do. Um, and I think I can get really, really good at it. Um, I found that that was my strength. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> Best story by far about entering into software sales. Absolutely incredible. Did he buy the knives? Yeah. <laughs> he, bought the biggest, he bought my biggest set of knives. So John's got the Homemaker Plus set, which is the Cutco equivalent to the biggest set of knives. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, you've, you've already touched on some really interesting topics there, um, Adam. I mean, obviously, you've, you've gone on to achieve incredible things in your career, but you can see a lot of the foundation um, very, very early on. Do, do, do you think it was kind of a mindset thing? Do you think it was, you know, the influence of, of kind of fatherhood? You know, you, you obviously mentioned that your father was obviously, you know, a, a sales director. Was that just something that was kind of ingrained or why, why was that foundation in you? So look, I mean, I'm a, a simple, like I like to make things simple. Um, I, I'm not this really complicated, like my, the, the, the beauty of what I think I bring to the enterprise is I have a way to simplify the sale. And I do that through figuring out the fastest, best, easiest ways to sell into an organization and then mapping that to a sales process and refining it. Like it's, it's an ever growing, growing, breathing thing that as you scale and you have to grow and change with that process. Um, but if you do it right and you build it in such a way, and, and I think it depends on your product. Like when we were at BMC, we had multiple different products. So we had some specialization, some products that we wouldn't focus on at all because we had the products that we knew we could win with. When you're at a startup, it's usually one product that you then build into module sets that build into separate products, right? So you, you have to evolve your sales process with that, but starting with the foundation of a sales process that you can take an average human being in. And by the way, guys, I fundamentally hate process. So I'm ADD to a fault, um, which is maybe why I study it so hard is because it's so hard for me as an individual and so I was like, that's an area where if I really work hard, like sports, um, I was an athlete um, through high school and college and never came easy for me. I had to work really, really hard to get good at sports. And what I would do is figure out the fundamentals of what I had to do. And I was smart enough that I kept doing those consistently. I got really good at the things that I would try to do. And so I applied that into selling. And I think as a leader, um, that's something that I, I prided my, my management team on was always building a process that we could evolve with and say, hey, here we are now. And we had this concept of, look, we're going to follow the process as a team because it's the best, easiest way we know how to do a deal. If you're going to do it differently, come talk to us and let's, let's go do it together. If we disagree with you, you're not going to do it. But if we agree with you and we're wrong, we all come back together. If you as an individual come in and don't follow the process and start doing that, we can't have mercenaries. Like we're a team we're all going to get better as a team. High tides raise all boats. We have to do that as a team, not as a group of individuals. And if you do that and you're wrong, you better be right. Because if you're right, hey, we're going to learn from it. We're going to get a big win. But if you're wrong, you're going to die out there. Like, mm -hmm. we, we won't bring you back. 
And if we're wrong as a team, we all accept that as a team. We learn and we move on because we make those choices together, knowing that the process has to scale and it has to continue to evolve and get better. Sure. You, you touched on the fact that there was obviously some early success for you at Parametric uh, Technology Corp. Um, what was the environment like? Um, <laughs> you know what? I was so naive to come into that company uh, when I did, mm-hmm. but um, it was cutthroat and it was like you produced or you were gone, right? I mean, we had quarterly contracts. I think you've heard people say that before. You were only as good as your last quarter. And if you weren't succeeding, you had maybe two quarters. And after six months, if you didn't have success, you were out. Um, And that was something that John was really good at that people respected him for. Like you knew the MO and you knew if you weren't going to have success, you were going to move on. Um, And it created like this meritocracy where people would work really, really hard to continue to outpace each other. And what it did was it added productivity to the numbers. Like you didn't just have to, once we, the, the culture that we would build around the process was almost as important as the process because culturally everyone was trying to overachieve and trying to be more successful. And it created this environment of like our productivity numbers would continue to go up because people would continue to outdo each other. And I think that was something that I tried to foster early at Okta. Um, when I was uh, in our second, my second or third year of selling, my third year of selling, we needed a million dollar deal. You need a million dollar deal as a SaaS company to be a billion dollar company, seven figures. I think it might've been left to my second and third year. And I went and talked to Dave Schneider at ServiceNow. And I go, Dave, you know, we're working on getting bigger deals. We're getting more into the enterprise. And he goes, dude, don't put a big stock ticket out there for a million dollar deal. And I go, I go, okay. He goes, get, go talk to Todd. He's like, go get a bit. So we got like 20,000 shares was the deal for a sales rep with the time was, was really lucrative. Amazing. Sorry. So looking at the, you know, and I suppose more for the benefit of, of the younger generation looking to enter into software sales obviously you've come straight from university and gone straight into what is a very high demanding environment what sort of sacrifices are you having to make you know at that time look this there's a high it's a um the ticket is expensive to play in this game so it's a high bar um and you have to be fully dedicated to it like i mean for the Last 15 years, I've been on the road 75% plus of the time. Um, I was Marriott Platinum for life by the time I was 41 years old. Um, That's nothing to be proud of, by the way. The benefits don't outweigh the cost because I got four kids, right? And so you are fully dedicated morning, noon, and night. I can tell you about times where I was trying to get deals out of Dubai at midnight on the last day of the quarter, literally calling the CIO of um, Air Dubai asking for the order at at midnight um, and then getting it the next day and just literally being crushed because that was my whole life was getting it within the quarter. You didn't just say those things to your team. You lived it because you have to bleed from the front and it has to be authentic. And so you ask people to do extraordinary things. It takes extraordinary people to be successful in these roles. You have to be willing to lead from the front to do that. And as an individual, that's what I really understood. Um, I think for me, where the value to continue forward or to look at being more of an advisor and helping people go do that and spending more time with my family because the desire to go do that is heavy in my heart. Like you really, I want to go, but the, the price to do it, the cost of admission, 
whether I'm a CEO or CRO or COO, you're going to be on the road, like right, not right now because of COVID, which is great, but this is a moment in time. Um, I mm-hmm. believe people are going to be back. It, it takes face-to-face interaction and people are craving that right now. Um, so yeah. when COVID passes, you're going to be, you're going to need to go get in front of people. I think that that's awesome. And that's what it takes to go do this. You have to be fully dedicated. And for a lot of people that, that hurts their family life, right? And so you have to be very attentive to your family life when you have the time, when you're home on those Saturdays, Sundays, it's a hundred percent dedicated. You have to be able to shut off and fully dedicate yourself. There's a lot of pressure on both sides of that. It creates a lot of stress as an individual to be successful on both sides of the ball. Um, and I think like that's the balance and that's what I'm super proud of is the ability to have being able to do that. And then frankly, like that's the decision that I've had to make is do I want to go back as an operator? Um, and part of me really does. And another part of me says, Hey, you know, there's only one shot to raise your family. So you got to, those are tough decisions to make. Yeah, for sure. So talk us through your journey. So three years PTC, um, obviously got out onto the field. Walk us through your journey, 2000, all the way up to Blade Logic, 2007. And four or yeah, five. I was um, working a deal at Selectron Corporation, which became Flextronics Corporation. They were the largest contract manufacturer at the time, EMS company in the world. They were in Milpitas, California, believe it or not. And so we had the small installation of PTC there. And I built out this huge value proposition with the CIO and I got into, I had two great champions um, in his lieutenants and they brought me to a meeting with the president, COO and the CIO to pitch this $5 million deal, which at the time was massive, right? And we were doing maybe less than $100,000 with these guys as a run rate before. So it's massive. I bring in the, I can't get Dick Harrison to come in. So I brought in the head of uh, worldwide sales at the time. Needless to say, the meeting didn't go very well. and so as the meeting ended, I went and grabbed the CIO and said, hey, Ken, can I fix this? And he goes, you got like one more shot to do it. Um, anyways, the, the whole process went down to, uh, it wasn't going to happen, the deal with PTC, but Ken Uchi, who was the CIO of Selectron, had a deal going on with Agile Corporation, which was this startup in the Valley. They'd just gone public and they were in product lifecycle management, which is where PTC had been pivoting over the last 18 months and the deal that I was working on to complement what they were doing with Agile. He goes, look, we need a sales rep from Agile. Um, I know they need a guy. I want you to be the guy that I do the deal with at Agile. Um, So the CIO recommended me into Agile. I was like 24 years old. Um, And I met the CEO and founder of Agile and Brian Stolley's like, I remember him saying, why would I hire you? He goes, have you ever done a million dollar deal? I go, no. He goes, why would I ever hire you? I said, well, because the CIO of Selectron uh, told you to. And he goes, that's a good point. Um, and eight months later, we did an $18 million deal with Selectron. Um, and it was a re- you know, really big learning experience for me. Getting into Selectron, I um, cold called the CIO through his beeper at the time. So I beeped him on the factory. I remember him calling me back on the factory floor. And we had this script um, at PTC where we would try to get your, we'd throw a metric at, we'd say, listen, you know, you don't know me, but I work with XYZ company. We help them. And I throw a couple metrics and I don't know if I can do the same for you, but if you give me five minutes to t- I might be able to show you how. And he goes, Adam, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I love your enthusiasm. So I'll take a meeting with you. And that's how I got into the account. And so the same guy referred me up and to me, the power of those executive relationships was really great learning early um, and fostering the ability to really build value. Because I think 
the reason that he wanted me to be his sales rep was I was trustworthy. I, he knew I worked really, really hard for him. Um, and he knew that if he did this deal with me, I'd work really hard for him to make it successful. It just wasn't going to happen where I was at PTC. So I moved on to Agile. Um, I was at Agile for another two and a half, three years. We got acquired by Ariba Corporation. Um, Keith Kroc was the CEO at the time. Um, it was when Commerce One and Ariba got killed in the market. Like right after the acquisition happened, our stock got, went from like 25 to 12. Um, they had to reprice all the options. This is in 2001, markets crash. I'm in global accounts. I did 3 million the year before with Selectron and like add-on business. And they're like, hey, we're gonna eliminate global accounts. We had, we had like a natural rivalry with the territory account guys and I had a fairly big ego. So I was like, hey, I'm out, give me a package. Um, I'm gonna go. And so I left um, and then went to a, a startup and I say I did SaaS before SaaS was cool. Um, I went to a company called Ariba Corporation out of Mountain View. Um, they're still in existence today. We did online PLM. Um, I started there, sub $100,000. I exited two years later. We were at about $4 million in ARR revenue. But this is 2003 to 2005. So it was like SaaS before people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, look, dude, you should own software. Like, this is the way it should go. Um, really early on, built on the Oracle platform. Um, now they're still around. They're, they're still doing, I don't know how well the company's doing, but at the time, it was really good opportunity for me. Um, and in 2005, um, I took another leap and went to a company called Open Pages uh, for a couple of years, was pretty successful there. Um, that's where I learned, like, I worked for a CEO called Mike Duffy, and we had a, a, a theory that, or we would say when you sign the contract, it was payment upon execution of the contract. Customers didn't really understand that because they, you cut the contract to give you a purchase order. I learned a lot working for Mike. Um, and it was during like, it was a compliance play. It was really cool. But John McMahon called me one day um, and said, hey, I'm at this company called Blade Logic, and the West is not performing the way we need it to perform. I had national responsibility at that time. And I really liked the CEO, but I always said, if John called, um, I'd go. Um, I even told him that when I was at Okta. I said, hey, if you ever go back, you got to call me, even though I've got a tiger by the tail here. I always want to know if you're going to go back. Um, and he called me and said, I need help in the West, so come help me. So I flew out to Boston. I met him. Um, and what was interesting was before I joined Open Pages, I interviewed with Blade Logic. And the CEO of Blade Logic and I uh, really got along well. Dave wanted me on board. He wanted me to be his West Coast guy. And I picked Open Pages over Blade Logic at the time. And it was because of the CRO at the time. And I, I just I had interviewed with him before. He didn't pick me for a role long before. Came back around. He really wanted me in the role. I didn't, my stomach didn't feel great about it. So I was going to go to open pages. The CRO there I knew really well. And I love the guy. Um, so Dave was like, hey, I'm going to fly out there. I want to talk to you. I talked to him and I said, hey, I can't take the job. So two years later, John goes, hey, we're going to put Adam Aaron's in the head of the West role. And I'm literally going in to get a haircut. And as I'm walking in, I get a phone call and I pick it up and he goes, hey, Adam, this is Dave. And I go, I go, oh, Dave, you know, I find it like registers real quick. I go, hey, man, how's it going? He goes, I have one question. What changed? He's like, what's different? And I go, John McMahon. And he goes, that's a good answer. <laughs> and then we proceeded to talk. Um, and yeah, I ended up joining Blade Logic at that point. And we went public nine months later. We went from last place um, as, a, as a team in a region to where we had six quarters of like being the number one team. Um, 
in the United States. Now, Jeremy in EMEA had some incredible years over there, but when we, we were pretty good we, in the West Coast, we had a much smaller team on the West, and we were able to perform guys like Mark Musselman, Brian Blonde, Patrick Ball. Um, we, were, we were fortunate we, we were able to hire, um, execute at a very high level, get the process. Like when we instituted the process and people started following it, John came out for a meeting with Disney in uh, Seattle and he turned to me and he's like, you got it. He was like, you got it. Um, and it was as simple as I wouldn't do a proof of concept unless if I've solved that POC, you were going to buy. It. So like I want, we already have contracts done. Like we would say, if you're going to do this and we prove to you that we can do it, what's left? We want to sign contract. And so we get the EB to buy into that. And then we go do the proof. So we wouldn't do it. And then, we'd know that if the criteria didn't align to what we could win with, with the POC, we wouldn't do it. We'd walk away. So, but we get that laid out and then you're like 99, you know, 95%. You can get a deal from stage four to close and have a high level of guarantee that it's going to close. And so we were very effective in being able to figure out how to do that. Um, we went public nine months later, we got acquired six months after that by BMC. Um, and I don't know if the, when we went into BMC, we were kind of like the snake that ate the elephant. Um, <laughs> they didn't know what they got necessarily. And they had a head of sales. They had a large team of people and John McMahon, you know, came in with us. And by the way, their average manager was probably in their mid to late forties, you know, early fifties. We come in, we're in our late twenties, thirties, maybe early forties. And so, you know, it's like the Sesame Street. One of these things just doesn't belong here. You're looking in the room. Um, and so you felt sort of out of bounds. We went, I remember because they had a VP meeting. We all flew out there to do like the VP QBR. And we were at a table and we're at this table. And you look at our table and you look around the room and you're like, yep, it's definitely going to be different. Um, but the CEO had the insight, Bob Beecham, to make John the head of worldwide sales. And so you think, okay, great. Then John put his guys in place and we went and rocked it. Nope. John made us compete. So we all had counterparts at BMC that were running the business and not every guy that was a blade logic guy got the VP role. Um, we had like two or three quarters to compete and outperform each other and whoever won, um, unless the other guy got fired before that became the head of that region. And so we all competed for it. And some guys didn't, didn't win it. Um, I, mine came right down to the wire. I had a big deal. Um, and my counterpart at BMC didn't know it. And we landed it with like two days to go and we just blew past them. Um, and at the time it was, it was Mark Nordheim, who's a great uh, member of, of my team at Okta and somebody that was really great at BMC as well. But we competed for that role, Mark and I. Um, and that's awkward, you know, after you compete with a guy and whoever wins or loses, then you got to go work together. After that, a lot of guys that lost didn't make it. Um, and it was great because it showed you if guys really or gals really had wherewithal to be there. Um, that were either from BMC or Blade Logic, because again, we had to compete for those roles. That's really interesting because I think there could have been a bit of well, there is a bit of a misconception that Blade Logic came in and those roles may have just been handed out, almost kind of privileged, just because they had history. But you're saying it wasn't like that. It's it's meritocracy from the ground up, always, forever. Yep, we would. I mean, we would do QBRs at the management level, even when we were at scale. And, you know, it was a, you had your stuff together and you went into those QBRs. And if you didn't, and you, you had 
a bad quarter or two, you have two bad quarters, you're, they're moving you out of your role. I had two bad quarters at BMC one time. Um, and Jim Drill was my VP of sales and John McMahon told Jim to move me into like an enablement role and take me out. Um, and I remember cause I went to Jim's house. I'll, I'll never forget this. Jim's a dear friend of mine, by the way. Um, we're sitting down in front of his house in, in Huntington beach. And he goes, um, do you really think you want to be a sales leader? Like, do you really think that's your calling? And uh, I go, Jim, I'm not a chump off the street. And he goes, what? And I said, I'm not a chump off the street, bro. I'm like, I, you may not want me to be a sales leader for you. I'm like, but I will go be a leader somewhere else. And I'm going to go lead a team to success. Like, we're this close. So we've had two bad quarters. I'm like, we are this freaking close. So go, you guys can take me out. And that's cool. I get it. I get that. I'll own it. And I know he goes, you got to go talk to John. And Jim's like, he's like, cause John and I talked and I'm supposed to move you out of your role. So if you wanted this shot, you got to go talk to John. And so I remember I called John and he called me back that night and I told him, I go, you can take me out. I go, this is, if you don't have faith in me to do it, this is too fucking hard. It's hard part of my French. Take me out. I go, it's too hard. Just take me out. And he goes, uh, I go, if you want to give me one more shot, I'm telling you, we're going to outperform. Like, but you don't have to, you can put somebody else in this role, but I am this close. Um, and they gave me an extra quarter and we blew it out. And we had a phenomenal year that year, um, but it, it took time. And what John would say, and one of the reasons I think he gave me that was, you don't always see success and you don't always see it quickly. Um, it sometimes it takes time. And what you look for, people ask me this all the time is you're looking for people to grow and to evolve. If they're getting flat and they're not learning and they're not growing, whether they're getting to success or not, but you see them progressing to get there and you believe that they're on the course, it just might take them longer. It's different stroke. You continue to invest in that individual and you get them there. If they flatline out, if you're not seeing them progress, they're not continuing to get to the economic buyer meetings. They're not driving the sales criteria. They don't have good champions. In the That's when you say, look, we got to pull this person out. But sometimes, and they're in big accounts, they're in it takes a longer amount of time. And I can give you examples of that, um, even in my own with Mm. Jim and John. Um, and I was fortunate enough that they believed that I was progressing to be able to give me the chance to get that third quarter and then nail it for that year. Um, but it was, you know, look, John hired me out of college and he'd be the first one to take me out if I wasn't for people to say that they're like, Oh yeah, well, you know, John. And like, you've just known him forever. I'm like, look, it's not about that. Um, it's do, always, and I respect that. Do you think he would have pulled you out or do you think it was part of the, part of the kind of the, the game? absolutely would have pulled me out. Yeah. And asked me to go do something else, go be an individual contributor, major accounts, go build out, like help them go build out this enablement function and go toast out for a year or two and then give me another shot later or something like that. I wouldn't have done it though. I too much drive to want to be, to do that. I mean, maybe as an individual contributor, I've stepped down from management to individual contributor jobs twice in my career. Uh, I think there's a lot of honor in that. I've gone to startups where we didn't have enough um, scale for me to, to have a team, I had to go build it myself. Um, start as like AE1 and then go build it. Sure. So obviously we've asked this question of John uh, because this series is obviously about the 33 CXO. It's a moment in time where an incredible group of sales execs have gone on to achieve incredible things. But you, you've obviously been first line, second line manager. So you've obviously been quite instrumental. You mentioned a few of the people that we've interviewed, Mark, Patrick, Brian, um, all have been featured on this series. How do you reflect on their success and what you've seen and, and how you've been able to contribute towards that success? You know, I, I, 
I feel like I, I feel honored to be a part of their success and to be able to help them to get to where they are. Um, it, I'm a part of something. So the, what, what Mark and Brian and Patrick, we're all a part of something that is I'm a branch of the root of, of what that is. And so I think anybody that is a part of that tree will help each other out and try to do anything we can. But that's a um, that's a cultural group and movement of people that um, we're, we're together because we want to do great things. And they, they, it takes extraordinary people to be able to do that. So I think um, like Patrick, Brian, Mark, they've gone on to do things that are well beyond the things that we've done together. And um, I'm proud to be a part of that story. I think those guys are phenomenal because of their own drive and their own intelligence and their own integrity and their ability to coach people. Um, and they've grown so much since that, you know, and what they were able to do was survive in that um, group or that tree of people and become a part of that movement or a part of that branch or however you want to call it. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the interesting part of all of this as well is that, you know, there was that one tree and that one tree has now stemmed off to really a forest, right? And you just got generation two, three, and now even four coming through. So this whole thing has just continued to evolve. Um, and those skills and, you know, the, the process has been handed down to, to many more and continue to allow many put other people to grow as well. It's an incredible, absolutely incredible story. I think that's the most relevant part is that there's a recipe and it's been proven on how to go execute. Um, and we had a lot of commercial land enterprise at Okta. And I can tell you, we use the same sales process. We just simple, you know, I'm a simple, I like to simplify things. Um, but that's where I think founders and companies, hey, there's founders dilemma sometimes because founders have done something that no one else can do in a market that they're disrupting. And so they look at how are they going to go to market and sell into that market in a way that nobody's ever done before. And they challenge the way that it's done. And what I'll, I tell founders a lot is um, this is a recipe that's been written and it's been written really, really well. And you have case studies of great success. Don't try to rebuild this wheel. Go try to be great at it. Take it and apply it to what you're trying to do and then build your process around that. Um, and build it in such a way that the average human being can be successful and you can go scale it and build it out into the masses. Um, because this is an area that you don't need to reinvent. You need to go focus and become very good at, and it's a tried and true methodology. You don't have to use this one. There's others. Um, and there's other great leaders that have methodology that are different than the one that we use. Um, but if you're going, and I, I also tell, um, leaders when I join advisory boards. You're, I'm either going to be very disruptive or very complimentary because I believe in a methodology that if you're not going to follow it, you probably shouldn't have me as an advisor. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be helpful to you guys because um, a lot of people say, oh, I want you to come in and help us implement that methodology. It's like, I can do that if your leaders are bought into it. They have to un you have to understand that leadership at the top has to buy it or they have to have their own methodology. And if they do, I can help you identify whether there's similarities there and I can help or I'm going to be disruptive to the way that you guys are doing business uh, versus being helpful. Maybe it is helpful in the long run, but it's quite disruptive. Yeah. And, and how do you get those leaders to buy into that? What is the process that you go through? Um, you know, they, it's more of like, a how have you done it before that most leaders that are trying to do this have just never done it before. Um, and in modern 
software sales in a SaaS environment, there's not a ton, although we've had some great exits, there's just not a ton of people that have done that recently. And so I was uh, at Okta before we were a million dollars in sales and I exited uh, post IPO. And so the challenges and the pitfalls that we went through at those times are a lot of things that I can identify and say, hey, here's what we did or here's what I wouldn't do in that situation because we did the wrong thing. Um, and that usually shows up early in a conversation with a CEO and CRO. Um, it's like, what are you guys challenged with? Where are you at in your journey? And when we start in that conversation, it's more just me saying, okay, how are you building that out and trying to relate to what they're trying to do and to institutionalize that in a way that it can be scalable, quantifiable. If you can quantify to qualify, um, that's a really big deal early in the sales process. And I try to help companies understand that. So if I can't do that, um, then, you know, I can't help you with what you're trying to do. Mm. And to, team mantra is quite a big thing for you, right? You know, we, 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 we talk about it being an, a key essential to one of part of your playbook um, and an element to your playbook, which is be the very best we can be as a team. Can you just give us a bit more insight into, into that for us? Yeah, look, I, I'd say I'm really strict on trying to figure out the best process because I'm looking for the easiest, fastest way to close business. And I think it's repeatable. You can change it uh, depending on vertical, but generally speaking, you want a process that exists across um, so that you can qualify early in or out of a deal. I mean, the reality is you want to get out of a deal as fast as you can if you don't think you can win it. And the way that you do that is maniacal discovery. And for me, that was, how do I simplify that? The discovery is hard. You ever sit down with a CIO and try to figure out or a COO what their priorities are? Um, and quantify that in a way with the hundred other things they're working on to make it meaningful enough that they'll want to spend more time with you. Like the number one thing we would say in a meeting with an executive is get another meeting before you leave. Do not leave the office without your next follow-up meeting. Get it on the schedule or don't leave the meeting. Um, and we would do that because we knew we had to get, we had to continue that relationship with the economic buyer one way or the other once we got there. And if we couldn't, we weren't rele relevant enough to continue on we should go work on something where people were buying what we were selling. Um, so I say all that and comes back to the process because we would try to simplify a very difficult process in a way that you could consume it and you could look at it, not just from an enterprise deal, but in a commercial deal and qualify it against the same set of criteria that we would in a similar process, just with shorter time periods. Like we would say we would have to do discovery and you would want to meet these three gates in order to be able to go into the next step of the sales process. Maybe there were seven gates in the enterprise. There were two on the commercial side that they needed to meet. They needed to get confirmation on the criteria that this was, and that they had budget to go do something about it, just as an example. So when we would see trends in the enterprise that we could identify that would percolate down, especially through like our upper mid-market customers. And these were valuable customers to us, like 250, $300,000 in ARR. And it would allow us to differentiate more early and be able again to like quantify the meaning of that and build in our customer life cycle from enterprise all the way down to our commercial customers. Amazing. So obviously um, from BMC 2008 through to January 2012, you, you went to Okta to take the chief revenue officer role. That's obviously a very, very big kind of step up how did you know you were ready to take such a big step in your career? Um, 
Yeah, it was a good time for me. I had just had my third child. I think my wife, I, not me, my wife had our thir- third child um, and she had stopped working. Um, nope, this was our fourth child, believe it or not. So I'm dating myself. Um, and she had decided, we decided after our fourth child, she wasn't going to work anymore. And my lifestyle is fairly expensive. So, and I was making more money at BMC. I ran like a 200 and $30 million business, if you included all the PS and support that we were doing. It was a big job. Um, and I had the whole West and I wasn't in any danger of losing my job, but I wasn't happy with what I was doing. Um, I was selling a software solution that I didn't believe in, in the way that I wanted to. And I felt this urge to go do my own thing. Um, I had been involved with some great sales leadership. I felt like I understood the way that sales process and execution and productivity and the main metrics that could drive a successful business. And I wanted to go do it myself. I thought I could do it better. Um, quite frankly, it wasn't an ego thing it was just something that I said, hey, I've seen these great leaders do it. I think I can do it. And I think I can do it better. Um, and that was my drive. And I went and I was fortunate that at the time, David Acheria had left um, BMC before was at Greylock um, and Mark Cranny, uh, who was a manager of mine at PTC, was at Andreessen. And so I went to them and said, hey, guys, I want to go run a, a software company. What, where Can you plug me in? Or can you get me in the portfolios? And Mark and I have a good relationship. He said, you got to go look at this Octodeal. Uh, he was helping drive their sales at the time. Um, and Dave said the same thing. So I went in and I met with the Oct team and it was so small. Um, the revenues were, and it was like single sign on and I was like, man, I don't know if I want to take that big of a leap, right? My wife just stopped working. Like if this thing's not successful, I W2'd more than the company made, you know, in sales. I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. So I actually interviewed with like 16 other portfolio companies over a three-month period. And I kept working on Okta. I brought two CIOs in throughout the three-month period to interview with me um, in the, with Okta just to check it out. And both said they'd buy it. Um, I brought McMahon in at one point in an interview with me to meet the CEO because I was just testing the waters. We walked out and he goes, don't do it. He actually told me not to do Okta. Um, I go, why? He goes, because they can't quantify it. They don't know what their value prop is. I said, yeah, but I think I can help them do that. Like that's something that I feel really good about the opportunity to go help them do because I wouldn't do it. So I could take a shot on something else. So I was, took me about three months and actually came down to the wire between me and someone else. And at one point, um, Todd McKinnon was going to pick the other guy. Uh, and I ended up going into the role. I had a lot of backing from um, the board because I'd known Dave and Mark and they were pushing for me. They said, look, we know Adam. We, we know where he's grown up. We know his DNA. We know everything about him. And Todd, you can go hire this other guy who looks really good on paper and he interviews well, but if you're wrong, um, you're going to lose the company. Like this is a huge, important hire for you. You need to pick the right guy and we know Adam. And so he took a shot on me. I took a shot on Okta. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the role uh, early on. I mean, so how quickly did it take for you to really start developing that value proposition? This was funny. Um, we had like seven salespeople, I think, when I joined, and we had a VP. Um, and we didn't, obviously, we turned over a little more than half of those. It was including the SDRs, but a few of them stayed, um, and they stayed long. And, and the VP, I remember the day I joined, um, Perry Germain, I sat him down and said, I, I, we sat down across from the table or in this crappy conference room at the time. 
And I looked at him and I go, you didn't vote for me, did you? And he goes, nope. I was like, that's awesome. This is a great place to start. Um, I said, I want to learn from you, dude. He came from uh, Success Factors and he had run their commercial business. I really didn't have a ton of commercial experience. So I was like, look, dude, if you follow what I'm trying to cook, like if you follow the, the recipe that I'm trying to lay down, he goes, I've heard a lot about what you do. He goes, and I don't know. He's like, I heard you guys are assholes. Um, and I go, yeah, I go, yeah, I appreciate that. I go, but I think you give, give me a shot. If not, doesn't work out, go somewhere else. But let's give it a shot. Um, Perry left after I did. So uh, Garrett Stanton was another guy. He was a SDR sales guy. Um, and Simi Patel uh, was, our, was another, those three people through the fire, um, through like six, seven years at Okta. And there's a lot of pride in that, I think. Amazing. So I suppose in terms of, you know, the execution of the playbook, what were the kind of early, what were the early processes that you were trying to impose? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I, I, you know, I say I'm from a network and there's like a movement. I, I, hiring is probably one of the most important things. So just to make, you know, getting your hiring profile right. And you don't just do that. You don't just come in and lay down a hiring profile. You have to figure that out. You have to figure out what the best fit is for the organization. And you do that like the first 90, 120 days. I don't know how leaders come in and just start changing stuff. I don't even know how to figure that out that quickly. Now, once I do, we're going to execute fast and we're going to move very fast, but I got to understand your plight. I have to have um, like an emotional tie into what your plight is, or I don't believe you. Like I want to go in and do it a different way. So learning and figuring that out early and then grasping onto that and building a process around what the buying process is. You build a sales process, not just for sale, you build it around what the buying process looks like in a way that's the most effective, fastest way to get a deal done. I jumped on the shoulders of giants. I took the Blade Logic sales process and I mimicked it. Um, like I laid down a seven step process my second quarter in. Um, so I was in six months. After my, I, I joined, I was through two QBRs. I came in, I'm like, hey, we're doing sales kickoff. And I basically built an Excel spreadsheet with all the seven, laid out all the different effective outcomes and took some case studies. I mean, I worked for like two, three weeks, um, pitched up on people. And in the process, I got Mark Cranny's sales process from Opsware. Because um, I'm like, hey, Mark, can you, I'm you know, building this thing out. I'm doing it myself. He goes, yeah, I'll give you a deck. And dude, we were I mean, literally our sales processes, the vernacular was different, but we were fighting with the same set of guns, ammos, tanks. <laughs> I mean, like we were out executing each other individually, but the, the way that we fought and the processes that we used were very, very similar. So I, I was able to take both of those and develop a sales process from the NTPC that I had at Okta. I mean, I just went in and started going to sales deals and just learning and figuring out like, hey, what's the plight? How do I help this team figure out what's the biggest metric to get the deal done? What matters the most? We were like, hey, we got to get to the CISO. And I realized really early on, you know, the CISO can say no, but they have a really hard time saying yes. So I don't necessarily want to talk to that guy or gal. I want to get to the CIO as quickly as I can in identity um, because identity is bigger than just security. And so we were like, hey, we need to be a big ticket item. How do we do that and we would figure, we need to figure that out quickly so that we either qualify in or out. And the way that we did that was we looked at what we were really good at. We quantified that in a way that we figured was meaningful. We had like three things that we considered to be differentiators. 
We laid those down within our sales process early. So if we could get the criteria to map to that, we'd know that we had you. And, you know, you'll hear other people say, if you walk in and the criteria doesn't match, something sinks, get out. You're not buying what you're selling, right? So we would lay, and if the criteria changes, you better figure out what's going on. Somebody could be coming in from behind you. But that was our biggest tool was like, lay down the criteria, get commitment from the economic buyer and do it in a way that you can quantify it for them. Like, so that they can defend it because- most times the CIO reports to the CFO or the COO or the CEO. We always say that's the economic buyer. It's not guys. And sometimes we never get there. We get to the guy that gets to that guy or gal or the gal that gets to that guy or gal, but they still have to get it approved in one way or another. And they have to do that with a value proposition. So we would want to arm them with that because most times in, in the early days, IT wasn't looked at as a strategic, as much of a strategic partner as they are today. So we would focus really hard on that. And, that process early and getting everyone to buy in and commit, not everyone did. And a lot of those guys weren't there anymore. Um, but we had guys that really did that came from not just the um, Blade Logic background. I was unique at, at um, Okta. We had a lot of Opsware guys too because they knew the program. And for me, that was an easy way to recruit people that I could get in and could get productive fast. And you'll hear a lot about productivity metrics because hiring, productivity, and churn are like the three biggest metrics that as an individual manager or a senior executive, you can be the most successful with in a go-to-market team. So if you can get those things right, hiring is such a big deal. McMahon will tell you if you make a bad hire, it costs you two years. Um, and I think it's totally dead on. And so getting the right people in place. And you, I used to tell the team, I'd be like, you know what's interesting? Who are our number one reps? And we'd call them out and say, what's the common theme about all those folks in the room? They've been here the longest. Isn't that wild? Like those are the folks because those are the, and they'd set the tone and the example. And that's where you get really rich productivity, but you, you had to make it worthwhile for them. And I was fortunate at Okta that Todd would, although Todd was not a sales, he's a product guy. He ran engineering at Salesforce. He had really good influence from Ben Horowitz and Anil Bushri who were on our board. And he would say to me every year when we build out the comp plan, show me how somebody makes a million dollars. And we'd build a comp plan to say, how can our top reps get to a million dollars? Because we'd sell that. We'd have one or two reps that would get to a million dollars in, in uh, OTE. And you could attract reps, the best reps across software companies that want, want to come work for you to make seven figures. And the last piece is you don't make that for everyone. You make it for the people that are extraordinary. And that would blow up like finance would say, hey, you're setting comp plans up where only a few people make the most of the money. And it's like, yeah, that's right. Because as an organization, it rewards the top earners. It pays in a way that we don't pay everyone. We pay the top people and they set the tone. Everybody wants to be like that. And it continues to drive the productivity north. What do you think the differentiator is from those top earners? Um, you know, you'll see some guys in, like they're artists. So they fly at their own level. They follow the process, but they do it in a way that is in their own vernacular. Like they, they'll do it with you. They'll show you how they're doing it, but it's unique. It's like they're um, like, Adam, these are the metrics that we have. We've built it out. Um, I've got it with the economic buyer, but we need to add like, there's three more things that they may want that I can't figure out if I'm going to get. And you're like, Hey, we need to clean this up and get the deal done. Um, and they'll get the, the, and you're like, should we take the deal down now or get the other three pieces and try to quantify? They'll get the whole thing. And they're 
you look at them and go, how the hell did they do that? They're following the process and then they start creeping in other pieces. And we call that like artistry within the pro there's some people that just have an ability to get um, really deep with their champions and economic buyers to do things that not the normal reps would. Then there's other reps that are just so good at the process and so good at following um, how to get a deal done. And they don't necessarily get the, they're consistent. They're 500 hitters all day long, right? And then you've got guys and gals that are the artists that are the Barry Bonds that just knock homers. And you sit there and go, man, how does that individual do that? Um, where other folks, and you need both, right? In order to have the right chemistry for a great sales team. What you can't have is when those artists are, are building out the way that they do it, it has to align with the way that we build out the process. We have to be able to learn from what they're doing and then be able to apply it. And that's difficult, extracting that and getting them to do it. Um, a lot of people look at the process and say, I don't want to be a part of that because you're going to restrict what I do and what I do, nobody else can do. And it's like, well, then you can't be here. Um, but if you can help us figure out what you're doing, I respect it. And we want a part of that in the culture of what we're building. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's extremely, uh, extremely valuable. I suppose one of your elements within your playbook is executive business value and discovery. Um, it's something that you've obviously highlighted. So just tell us a little bit about that. So we were able to take the sales process. And we, after I initially built out the process, we brought in force management and John Kaplan and the guys institutionalized everything I did on an Excel spreadsheet. It cost Octa a lot of money, but once they got religion after a few quarters, we invested in it. At the same time, the head of product marketing, we were, I kept saying in executive meetings, we talk about how we do this great feature and function for a customer. And my line was, so what? And they, it would just piss people off. And they'd be like, what do you mean? I'd be like, well, so what? Like, so we can do that. What does that mean to me? How do I quantify that? How do I qualify that for somebody? Like, so what? That's great. We do. We can log them onto their apps faster than anyone else. We can get an app onto our system faster. So what? What does that mean? And so I pissed off the head of marketing, product marketing. We brought in Forrester to instantiate what does that mean to our customers? And we built out a business value proposal. Uh, it's third party. You could come in with an SE at the time and you could do it in about 30 minutes. It was a Q&A session. And we built it into the early, late part of discovery, but into the early part of the sales process where you would go in and say, hey, listen, at the time, we do five things really, really well that we knew we could do that would differentiate us, that we knew mattered, that we could quantify. And I'd say, if you give us 30 minutes to talk through these five things, I can tell you, I won't waste a lot more of your time if we don't align. In fact, I could probably tell you what is good for you that we don't do if it's not one of these five things. But if, you'll, if one of these does align, even one or two, um, we might be able to prove to you that it's really worth a lot. And you might figure out one of these five things you didn't even think of. So if you'll give me the grace to do that with you, I can save a bunch of time. And most executives like that straightforward approach. And you sit down with them and you go through this value prop of the five things that we do. And I'd say, look, we're going to build out a value prop. You can throw it out. I don't care about the numbers. It's more about how do you qualify what matters? So when we finish the exercise, I want you to tell me like, which one's A, B, and C of what we went through or is there just an A and nothing else matters? Because we'll focus on those one or two, three things and we won't worry about the others. And we do that and we come up with a quantifiable metric. And most CIOs would be like, yeah, that's, that's way higher. I would never present that internally. Like, we don't care about those metrics. We're, that, you know, every software sales guy tries to show me those metrics. 
But as we continue through the sales process, we keep instantiating how the things that we did hit those value tenants. And at the end, like we did a deal with MGM and they swore up and down. The value prop didn't matter. When the capital action request went to the CFO for signature, the value prop was the front page of the, cap, of the car. Um, and it was like religion at that point. We have to do it in every single deal. Um, and our ability to do that early gave us the religion to do it late. So we had this program. Once we got the BVA process down really well, we said, hey, you know what? We upsell and getting customers to buy in. Maybe those, they had two things initially that they really cared about. Let's go back and show them what they achieved off of what we said they'd get. And in that process, let's talk about the other areas of Okta that they could potentially leverage that they might be interested in now that they're seeing all the success they're getting from the things that they did implement with us. And it was a great way to re-engage the executive, which sometimes would change. There's a lot of change in some of these organizations. You get a reintroduction. You'd say, here's what we told you you were going to get when you bought. Here's what you actually got. Oh, and by the way, we do these three other things and we think you can get this out of that. Like, and we'd be working with champions and building like this would give us, so we called it the customer life cycle. And we'd come back every six months, every 12 months and do this with our customers. And as our product grew and matured, it gave us an audience and gave us a, a way to continue on, not just with the executive management, but why they invested and what the value, like it was a tenant that we continually build and Okta continues to build. And we built it out actually even further on the front end. So we built it so a sales rep could spend 15 minutes with a prospect and qualify whether we called it a BVR whether a BVR should be get a true BVA. And we get them to buy in even earlier in discovery to say, hey, if this stuff's important to you, we'll have a second conversation where we'll dive a little deeper. And we'll give you, and we got really good at that. And we'd say, hey, and by the way, this isn't just about Okta. It's identity, it's Forrester, it's a third party. You could take this and apply it to a different identity play like Ping or Oracle, which by the way, it was built you know, with our value tenants, but it was generic and it was a third party document. And so, and it would build the criteria early. If we didn't see that, what we'd given them in the requirements later on, because then we'd say, hey, look, what we've given you, if the value of what we talked about early aren't the requirements that you're trying to drive to achieve, we should probably exit. And so we always had that of like, should we stay in or do we get, and the sooner you figure that out, the better out, because the one thing you can't replace for a sales rep is time. And if you spend too much time, like I used to say, um, there's, out in the Bay Area, there's a large population of great white sharks. Um, they call it the Red Triangle. There's the Farallon Islands. There's uh, San Francisco Bay and down yeah. south towards Santa Cruz. And there's a big group of whites and they follow sea, sea lions, right? And so they feast on them. That's how they live. And um, people love to see it. They love to see these sharks come up. They breach out of the water. So tourist boats were going out with surfboards and they were towing them off the back of the boats. And these great whites would come up and they'd hit these surfboards thinking that it was seals, right? Or sea lions. First of all, surfers hated it. Secondly, Greenpeace, <laughs> Greenpeace had a, a heyday on it because what was happening was these great white sharks extend a lot of energy to go hit something. And if they do it and they don't get something for it, um, they do it too many times, they die because they don't get food. They need sustenance in order to live. Um, and we used to use that analogy in a deal. Um, you got to make sure if you're going to go after an opportunity that it's a seal and not a surfboard. Um, Cause if you pursue it and at the end of it, you find out it's a surfboard, you do that one too many times, 
you just, you, you need sustenance. You're going to die. Like you don't have enough time to keep hitting surfboards. You got it. And how do we do that? We qualify and we do that through quantification and we do that to ensure that we're aligned with what the customer's buying. Um, and that was some that was kind of a crude analogy, but it was one that we found effective. Brilliant analogy. Fantastic. So how did your role evolve as a CRO as Okta reached further maturity? Um, man, you know, I, I did things. We, I used to say we make history every day. Um, <laughs> and it was fortunate that I had some great mentors that would help me along the way because I, I, you asked me, like, how do I qualify in for advisory roles in the same way that I looked at advisors and I got great advice from others, which teaches me to be a better advisor at the time of guys that had just been there and done that before. Like I would go meet with Dave Schneider and I had him on an advisory board because we wanted to be like ServiceNow. Like they were the company that we wanted to model. And it was like, hey, we can be like them. We're going to kill it, right? They had a commercial business. They had an enterprise business. And it was fun. Dave and I would sit there and debate about the issues we were both facing at different times. And it was a great learning experience for me. So being able to, and then McMahon, like I'd call John with tough questions or I, I'd have Cranny there um, to help me out. So I had, and- Again, fortunately, the board said, hey, Adam needs some advisors that have been there, done that. So let's get a couple. And we had that throughout, throughout my tenure. Um, and it gave me an audience. And it gave me, like, we'd sit down with Todd sometimes. And I remember, like, um, Tom Addis at the time. He goes, hey, Adam, you may not like what I have to say right now with Todd. And he was the head of box. And I go, dude, that's fine. Like, help me out, bro, because I'm not sure what to do. And if you think I'm wrong, I need to hear it. Like, let's do it. Cause we, Box was another company at the time. We're like, Hey, we, we want to grow like Box is growing. So we would try to emulate those opportunities. And as we grew and scaled, it was interesting how they started seeking advice from us and we became real partners. Um, and as a C, uh, C level um, executive, you have to be willing to grow and change and, and scale. A lot of executives, don't scale because they get lost in, oh, either the bureaucracies of what's important to execute on. Like I said, like for me, simplifying things has always been a good trait that I have. I, I can take a complex environment and try to break it down into ways to execute sim and simplify it, um, even at scale in large groups. And it was, for me, it was about following the process of what I'd seen done before and what executed very well um, and, you know, not mimicking it per se, but laying it down in a way that my culture, our culture at Okta would accept it and extend it. And even get, like I said, I felt like we were better um, at things than some of our predecessors were. I'm not saying we were the best, but man, we tried. And not just to be the best in software, we wanted to be the best sales team ever um, in any market. And the way that we thought we did that and the way that we prided ourselves on doing it was through executing to the best of our ability. And that came down to having a way that we could, we could build out a, a, a buying process or sales process that was successful. So one of your mantras is we won't apologize for being aggressive as we have to win now. Tell us about that. Um, you know, we would get it would be like PTC. People would say those guys are really aggressive. And um, that was something that, you know, some people would look down on. We got that, um, reputation early at Okta. They'd say, hey, you know, we had this message of, uh, if, they, if you call and the guy hangs up or gal hangs up, call him back. If they hang up twice, show up. Like, go to their office. Um, and we did. And I would do it. Um, because 
you could get things done in a way that people would respect you and would make decisions based on those interactions. And I learned that really early on in my career um, at PTC. I had a deal. It was last day of the quarter. Um, Jack Lynch was my AVP and Mark Cranny was my SVP. And I had a deal and I didn't, wasn't going to get it. They dropped me off in front of the um, account and left me there and said, don't come back till you get the deal. Um, <laughs> and it was like a 20 K deal. And I got like 8,500 bucks on the left, but I got an order. Right. Cause I freaking it was so awkward. I'm sitting in the lobby, you know, and the guy's admins coming down and, and it's, and he's like, listen, you can't be here. And I'm like, I have to, you know, this is my job. Like, this is what I do. I've got to, cause I can't go back there. You guys said you were going to commit to an order. I have to get it done. And that was a really small order. We've been able to do that in, in some really large orders uh, later on in my career at Okta. So I believe that really early on. And we would go do that. We would show up and we, would, we wouldn't apologize. We'd say, look, I, there's only so much time. Like somebody's going to win this market and we're not going to apologize for wanting to be that vendor. Like we're, we're not Microsoft. We're not Oracle. We want to serve you in a different way. We think we can do it in a way that's better. Um, and we can prove that to you. We want to be that, that partner. And look, man, being genuine, having that integrity, we had a lot of integrity. At all. We wouldn't promise things that we couldn't deliver. We, we had a deal one time, and I'll, I won't mention the name of the customer, but the CFO said, look, Adam, I'll give you the order if you'll commit to going and looking at this identity problem we have. And you don't have to commit to doing it, but going and looking at it and telling us if you will go do it. And if you'll promise, you know, to spend like six weeks with us on that, we'll sign this order now. And Todd goes, no, nah, dude, we've already looked at it. We're not going to do it. And I'm like, okay, dude, he's not asking us to commit to anything. He's just saying, go look at it and we get the order now. And he goes, no, we've already looked at it. We're not going to do it. You need to go tell him we're not going to do it. And I'm like, I mean, these are early days, right? This is like, this one deal is bigger than any other, my whole quarter. So this one deal is as big as my whole quarter. And I'm like, dude, okay, like I, this, this may not end well, but okay. And I go down and I sit down with the guy and I go, look, we're, we're not going to commit to that because we told you, um, we've already looked at it. We'll go do this with you, but we're not going to do that. We don't want to make a commitment for something that we can't stand for. And he goes, okay. He goes, we're going to move forward with you anyways on this project. He goes, but tell Todd, if you'll look at that, um, and you'll do it, we'll pay you double. And, uh, 18 months later, we did it. Wow. Uh, but we had to work through it, right? We wanted to be really successful. We wouldn't commit. We figured it out in a way that we could do it, but we had to work with them as a partner. Um, but for me, that was an amazing learning experience. Like saying no was so powerful. I mean, you, you know, you're like, hey, this is a big moment, but it's, it's very justifiable. And there's inte integrity in that, in a way that you, you build a culture around. Yeah, Scott Sinatra spoke quite um quite a lot about the walk away and being able to say no and it's yeah you can you can see how it's so powerful so um classy org after octa yeah tell us about that journey tell us about that business very yeah. different to well historic historically what you've been doing right yeah well we had a big non-profit play at, at, at uh, octa we did well there I didn't plan on going back to work. So I was, I live in San Diego. Um, I had recruiters calling me for different roles. I said, listen, if it's not in San Diego, don't call me. Um, I'm not interested. <laughs> there's not a company, there's not a lot of companies in San Diego. So it'd have to be really interesting. Um, and a couple of people had told me, hey, 
uh, go take a year sabbatical. And then when you get to the end of 12 months, go take another year. Like, no, but nothing's going to change. And you should take some time off and spend it with your family. Um, six months in, I found Classy. And the recruiter that recruited me into Okta calls me and goes, dude, I got a winner. This thing is doubling year over year and great company. And I met the CEO and he's a Boston guy. I'm a, I spent some time out in Boston, as I mentioned earlier. And I really got along with them. We just I just really liked him and said, Hey, this is the guy I really would like to work for. But dude, I've only been out of work for like four months. Um, so I struggled with it, but I wanted to go back and do something. And I took the role for a couple of reasons. One, um, look in the United States alone, $440 billion is given through to nonprofits annually. Um, less than 10% of that is done online today. It's counterintuitive to the way that we live our lives, but the majority of money is in, baby boomers and older people's hands. Um, that's just in the U.S. alone, by the way. And it's growing at double digits, but you're talking like it's at like 8% right now, the total global giving market, online funding. But the largest transfer of wealth in the history of man is happening right now. Um, Generation X, Y, and Z uh, were born online, not maybe Gen X a little less, but these folks are not going to fundraise in the same way that their parents did. Um, and it's inevitable. The, mar the TAM is massive. Even if you just break down the 8% of um, online giving, it's like three, four billion, three, four billion dollars. Um, so the opportunity there is, is, is very big and it's growing. Um, the, the, the issue is there's not a great company in that space that has disrupted it yet. So I looked at it and said, man, this thing's in San Diego. I really like the founder. The metrics look good to me, but I'd never done fundraising before. And when I got into the company, I got about, I told you, I don't, first 90 days, I just want to understand the business. I'm like six weeks in and I go, wow, you know, this business is way different than I thought. Um, this is like a rebuild. I'm going to have to, because the, the productivity, the CAC, just the way that we were growing, I was like, this is not what it looks like. It was from a fundraising standpoint, but the fundamental metrics underneath fundraising were not where they needed to be, to be best in class, to get the kind of valuation that you want to make a good exit. So I went to the CEO and the CFO and said, Hey guys, I don't know if I'm the right guy for the job. In fact, if you, if you keep me in the role, I think it's going to be really bloody. Like, I think I'm going to end up cutting a bunch of people and redoing this thing. They're like, Nope, that's why we hired you. We know we've got an issue. We need to fix it. So I came in under one premise and then we started raising capital three months after I got there. We recapitalized the company, raised around, rebuilt, took the company from, oh, 230 employees down to like 120, less than that. Um, and rebuilt the CAC, rebuilt the entire go-to-market and operational functions. Um, and frankly, got the thing, the last two and a half quarters, if you look at the metrics, they're all best in class from the ARR, the growth, the renewals, the upsells during the contract, upsells at the time of renewals, um, and so like the last two and a half years, the thing's just been home. I brought in a senior VP of sales who is an ex-Blade Logic guy who lives in San Diego, who's just a monster micronary. And he was perfect for that business because it's a very transactional, more of a commercial-like business. Mike's great at teaching people and enabling them. And it's a consistent enablement job. And then we brought in a head of operations who's really good into building out a lean, effective go-to-market approach, brought in a great CMO and the company really started blossoming. For me, um, I realized the exit rather than being a three or four year exit was probably a four to six year exit. And that wasn't, you know, 
my tie into that was a bit longer than what I wanted to do. So I went to the CEO um, and said, look, I think I should step down. We agreed that I'd go part-time. Um, so I did that for about, I, I did that after 18 months. We rebuilt the company. I brought in a new head of sales. I moved to part-time. Um, I was still working like 60 hours a week. There is no part-time. You know, the, the price to play this game is high. Um, so my wife's getting on me about that. When COVID hit, um, we were looking at bringing in a new COO. Our CFO had exited. We had a great guy coming in who had go-to-market and finance experience. His name's Chris Himes, and he's a Salesforce background M&A guy. I said, look, dude, he was coming off our board. I go, bring Chris in. I'll help transition him in, and I'll move to an advisory role. So I am still an employee at Classy. I help the CEO and the COO a ton, and I love those guys, and I'm really proud of what the business – it's different. Um, but it's philanthropic, and for me – the need wasn't necessarily, even though the market's massive and I think there's a huge disruption opportunity there, nonprofits are slow. And this wasn't about building the next 10, 20, $30 billion company. It was like, hey, I can go do social good, which is something I'm passionate about, and go build a great sales organization in the process and go do great things for the world. I've made a bunch of money. Um, and for me, it wasn't about that ego play so as much as it was being able to do what I love to do. Um, and unfortunately, I've been able to do that, but I come back to the fact that the price to play is very high. So if you go back as an operator, there's no halfway. It's like, not for me anyways, You're, you've got to be all in and you got to lead from the front. So is, the, is this the future for you then, Adam? Advisory moving forward? I don't know for now, man. I mean, like I'm enjoying raising my family. Um, I'm, I like being able to give advice. I, you know, I don't know if I'm as good of an advisor as I am uh, a, a operator. People don't always take my advice. Um, I got four kids. I get that all the time. It's like, <laughs> that's where sometimes it's, it's hard because when you're an operator, you go, well, you may not agree with me, but I'm going to pull the lever and we're going to go that way anyways. So I have to find other ways, um, which takes you one step away from, and I think I'm a good operator. Um, I think I'm a good sales guy. I love that. So I'll never say never, but for me, if the band got back together and they were executing and they wanted to bring in someone to scale it and help them go big, that would be interesting to me. If, if they were at, you know, 20, 30 million and they wanted to go to 50 and then 100 and go big, they needed an executive to help go do that. I think that might be, there might be a time where I would come back. But that opportunity may never come and I don't know if I need it, but, you know, the fire still burns, brother. You can't put it yeah. So, so I, I suppose what our listeners and viewers might not know is that we had reached out to you a while back, but obviously um, you, you did actually have an accident, um, you know, a surfing accident. It was quite, 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 quite bad. Tell us about that and tell us, has that changed your perspective on, on things? Yeah. Um, uh, I had a surfing accident over Labor Day this year um, and I was taking a wave. It was a pretty big set. I was out there with a buddy. My family was there and I kind of endoed off the front of the wave and there was no water underneath. So I hit my head first on the sand um, and I just kind of went numb for a couple hours. So I was able to um, move my neck, but my body was pretty numb for a couple hours. I went into the ICU um, after a couple hours, I started feeling back in my body and I'm fully, um, I have full movement now, but it's been a few months and a lot of therapy to get there. I spent about 11 days in the hospital after the incident. Um, and, you know, 
my, my wife was asking me too, like, what, what do you think it's done to you? Um, you know what? It was not a defining moment for me. Um, and it was a pretty crazy moment. Like you could say what's the hardest thing you've ever gone through. And I like to ask that question in interviews and be careful what you get. Um, this is probably one of the hardest things I've ever been through, but it's just another thing, dude. It's like, I know I knew when the next day when I could move my feet and could feel my arms, even though they hurt like hell, that this was just going to be a road that I got to get through like a mountain. I got to climb. And I've been that, you know, the why me spirit of like, you know, Hey, it was a hell of an accident. I was really, other than having the accident and I and spending 11 days, I was probably the most fortunate guy that ever had that accident. I could have passed out and sucked up water. I was in the water for three or four minutes, but I was able to catch air. So I didn't have problems with that. I never got a concussion, even though I hit really hard. I fractured some vertebrae in my neck, but they didn't move. So I didn't have to have surgery on my neck. Though any of those things happening and the severity of my injury goes up like massively. So I felt super fortunate. And if anything, it changed my perspective on how much I value the things that I have in my life, just the simple stuff, like um, my wife and my kids and my, you know, my parents and dude, being able to brush your teeth, um, shave your face, like <laughs> simple things, right. In life that you look at and you just take for advantage for um, that perspective has been awesome for me. But, you know, I think the way that we're built um, unless I'm not going to be some physical way. I'm not, if there's a physical way to do it, even though there's a, I'm going to do everything I can to turn this moment into just that, like not a defining moment, but just another moment in time. It's something that, you know, you got to fight through to get to the other side. And I feel super fortunate. Fair play. Fair play. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose in terms of, um, this series, uh, you know, the, the, one of the final questions that we always ask, um, Adam is, does the hunter make the unicorn? What's your thoughts on that? So when you say the hunter, is it the sales rep or is it the sales team? It's the sales team and the sales leadership. It's all of that, right? It's the kind of the sales strategy, but it's the, it's the people that are driving the go-to-market. Yeah, there's a great line I like to use, the great leaders make great teams. Um, and so I don't, like, there's great sales reps in the world, and they're absolutely a key component, but they work for great leaders. So I start with, like, you need great leadership to build great teams. And I think you've got examples of, like, a Slack. Um, you've got these side examples of companies um, that don't necessarily need an enter. They grow organically, but they're very few and far between. And in those cases, maybe you don't need, there are cases where you may not need an enter Shopify. You may not need an enterprise sales team, but in most cases and in the true enterprise sale, you can't win without a great go-to-market. And that comes with great leadership. And those leaders have been taught, if you get the right ones, really, really well. And they are so valuable. And I tell CEOs, or go get one, get one early because they're usually running the show. The founders are running the show. And I'm like, this is a full-time job. You need someone that can go do this for you. And that's all they care about um, because it's so integral and so important to the way that you build out the success of your company. So for me, great leaders make great teams and you don't get to unicorn status 
in the enterprise specifically without great leadership. And that, that, that builds unicorns, that quadricorn. I don't know what, what's the beyond that now? You like that? Now we got, you can go to quadra after DECA. You can just, <laughs> that's free. You guys can keep that one. Right. We'll trademark that one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I suppose this is probably a good place to, uh, to kind of summarize on what we've heard. Um, Adam, it has been a truly remarkable um, session with you today. And I suppose in the way of a summary, I, I think there's a few things that have really resonated. And I think that the, the first place to start for me is this is a high stakes game and you better show up. And we've seen that by your own admission, you've never been the most talented sportsman. You've probably not been the most talented salesperson. You look at other sales individuals and you regard them as artists because they can do things that perhaps you might not be able to do. But I think what's kept you true and what's enabled you to continue to just push through those, those boundaries and continue to, to, to evolve is that relentless motivation and belief and ethic. And at no point did you ever rest on your laurels the fact that you were in an environment that really gave you the opportunity to grow on merit was the perfect playing field, the perfect game for you to go on and achieve the amazing things. And even when you thought you'd reached a level, you'd go and find the next game to continue to push yourself. And it's no surprise that you've reached the levels that you have today. So on that note, I just want to say a, a massive thank you. Um, it's been truly, truly amazing spending time with you and, uh, and, and for you to sh share your story with us and, and our viewers and our listeners. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a long time coming and I, I really enjoyed it. It's an honor to be a part of the, the 30 that you're focused on and it's a phenomenal group. I'm proud to be a part of it and this was a lot of fun. So thank you guys. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks ever so much for sharing in your journey with us, Adam. Absolutely. Absolutely.